morning. It is such a pleasure and privilege to be with you here today. I am uh, delighted. I'm hoping that preaching is like riding a bicycle because it's been a while. I haven't been on the, on the seat, but uh, I am uh, just delighted to be with you today. And the series that Alex has invited me to come and be part of with you, The Parables of Jesus, are, of course, some of the greatest teachings in the New Testament. And so to be here and share um, my thoughts and, and my preparation around uh, one of these parables in the Gospel of Matthew is certainly a delight. I've been uh, just overwhelmed with the privilege of, of studying and preparing for today, and so uh, I'm just excited to share with you. So let's have a, a brief prayer of preparation, and we'll dive in. Lord, may this time be a time that is given over to you, a time that changes uh, from chronos to kairos, a time when it's not ordinary, but is extraordinary, not because of the preacher, but because of your presence and your blessing with us. This we ask in the grace and presence of Jesus Christ, in the blessing of the Holy Spirit, in our love for the Father, in whose name we pray, amen. So let us begin by setting the stage. You can't just jump in, read a parable, and think that you can interpret and understand it. You have to get uh, into uh, the frame of reference. So in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to uh, start off looking right at the beginning as to how this all began. And it began when Mary realized she was going to give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, the angel said, because he will save his people from their sins. This is right back in the beginning, chapter 1. Nothing has really unfolded much yet. You know, we've had the genealogy and that kind of thing. But the angel gives Mary this understanding in the Gospel of Matthew what the purpose of her son's life would be. And that is the forgiveness of his people's sin. So from before the beginning, God knew that his son Jesus would come to save his people from their sins. This saving act would be God's mercy upon his people, for they couldn't possibly save themselves. From the debauchery and the way that they had lived, they had created nothing that would allow them to have the faithfulness that they were called to live within. And so years of confession and thousands of sacrifices had produced only burnt meat, burnt grain, fiery oil, and smoke. Now, in the fullness of time, God was about to perform an unprecedented sacrifice once and for all time. Surely this would be the end of sin, the beginning of rebirth, the restoration, the redemption of the good creation that God had spoken into existence. So that's where we're starting from. Then in Matthew 5, uh, verse 7, we also have something incredible that sets the tone for us when we hear our parable this morning. And you probably all know that Matthew chapter 5 and 6 is the Sermon on the Mount, right? So in the Sermon on the Mount, 
There's one particular beatitude I want us to keep in mind in the back of our uh, consciousness as we go forward and read our important text this morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We need to get this in the right order. Blessed are the merciful, so they will be shown mercy. Okay? Not that we all get mercy, and therefore there will be mercy, uh, therefore the blessing will come, but the merciful will be blessed. The right order. Everything's got to be connected in the right order this morning. In the Son's most powerful, most memorable sermon, in the first discourse of Matthew's gospel, we learn in the midst of the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. As only the master communicator, Jesus, can make clear, there is a reciprocal nature to the Father's blessing. We learn from receiving and duplicating the actions we, we observe in our holy God. Where, you might ask, do we perceive these actions? Well, primarily, we see them in the life and witness of Jesus. But if we've understood our calling as Christians correctly, we should also see signs of these actions in Jesus' body. And what's Jesus' body? Hands on the buzzers. Let's have a little bit of competition here. The church. Thank you, sir. The church. So we are meant to exhibit some of these characteristics. We are meant to be the people of mercy. It is this body which he gave his life for to allow the Holy Spirit to come and witness through us to the world at large. So when we allow Jesus to show us, uh, to, if we follow Jesus, we show Jesus to the world. And the Beatitudes come more than platitudes, they become a way of life. They become a working worldview that is exemplary of the community we've been called to be in contrast to the individualism that is rampant in our current world. Okay, so you got it? We're merciful people because we show mercy. Let's carry on. The next thing that we encounter in Matthew's gospel that's so significant to our parable this morning <clears throat> is Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. Now, Matthew's version is somewhat different than the one that we encounter in Luke. The one in Luke is the one that we often recite in worship. So let me just flesh this out a little bit for you. The disciples themselves were confused somewhat by the altruistic attitude and sought to know how to pray. So they asked Jesus, how do we pray in order to be transformed into such believers and practicers and practitioners of your teaching? These seemed lofty goals. Jesus had called them to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. To these disciples, if we use modern parlance, this seemed like a great vision statement. However, it's much more difficult to sustain such a statement in their real life. And so they asked Jesus, help us. How do, how do we manage to make this a reality? So Jesus understood this need, and he offered them a prayer. The prayer that we have adopted as the Lord's Prayer. 
This prayer is to sustain the faithful followers. In our wisdom, we've chosen to use Luke's version of the prayer, which is less demanding and contains no consequences for failure. Now, when I read you Matthew's version, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. So listen carefully with me as we share Jesus' prayer again from the Sermon on the Mount, establishing some of the primary parameters for hearing our parable this morning. Ready? This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil or wicked one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Make sense? And then the clinger. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. That's not in Luke's version, is it? In Luke's version, there's no consequences for not forgiving. In Matthew's version, it says quite clearly, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. And after that, we say, Amen. Now, there's a pattern building here, a pattern that I want you to see unfolding just before our parable as well. So out of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's Gospel, there are four key concepts that we need to know. I'm going to give you a free Greek lesson this morning, okay? So there's four key words out of that prayer that we need to understand and grasp and apply when we hear them in the parable. The first is aphelema, debt. When that word is used in Greek, when it's used in the New Testament, it primarily refers to financial debt. It is the indebtedness of one person to another owing actual financial responsibility. It also often implies what we hear in that wonderful proverb, money is the root of all evil. Not that if you have money, you are evil, but money can cause all kinds of evil problems, as we're going to see again in the parable. The second word is paraptama, paraptama. We could have fun and say this all together. Paraptama. Oh, yes. You're all ready for seminary now. Paraptama is only one of the words that we use for sin that is Greek. The other word is hamartia. Hamartia. And those two words are used interchangeably, both meaning sin, and both are used interchangeably. Matthew uses them very sparingly. Only six times in the Gospel of Matthew do we hear either of those two words used in the Greek language. But when he does use them, you want to pay attention. 
because something very important and very specific is inferred. Next word, paneros. Paneros is evil or wicked. Evil or wicked. And if it has an article in front of it, in Greek, the, the letter O-ha, we know that it means the wicked. And usually that refers to the devil, the wicked one, and this is the way it is most often used in the Gospel of Matthew. He's not afraid to speak of the devil, and he's not afraid to tell us the consequences of us not understanding what is required of good Christian living and faithfulness to Christ. And the final one, which is the word that that brings me great comfort, is aphemi. Aphemi. And aphemi is that wonderful word, forgiveness and mercy and leaving something behind. It is, in, in the original Greek language, it's as if you can just leave that. And it's often coupled with a word that uh, Allison used last week, like garbage. Leave that garbage behind you and move forward into the pristine and beauty of life in Christ. Understand that? Leave that garbage and move forward into this blessedness, into this mercy, into this new way of understanding and living. So the one thing I wanted to make clear so you would understand it is the difference between mercy and grace. And this was the best definition I could find to help you. Mercy is not giving to a person what he or she deserves, while grace is giving to a person what he or she does not deserve. So grace is a gift which is giving to you what you didn't expect or you didn't deserve. Mercy is withholding from you what you do deserve. A kick in the pants. Amen. Amen. So this is two concepts that we have to keep separated to understand. One is given to you and one is withheld from you. And so for me as a Christian, mercy was so vital and so important. I had to have mercy before I could receive grace because it was a block. It was something that, that God was unable to penetrate to give me grace because I needed mercy first. And you'll see that later in the, in the sermon this morning. So what's wonderful about Jesus What's wonderful about Jesus is the way he teaches and the way he goes about things. If I could paraphrase here, Jesus might say something like, Come walk with me, my disciples, as I open to you the kingdom of heaven. Man. And then the disciples, as I said before, they're a little bit um, confused, and haven't worked this all out yet. So they ask him, as they did in Matthew 13, 10, why do you speak to people in parables? Like, what's that all about? Why, why aren't you just talking directly to us? And then in 13, 13, Jesus says in return, 
Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And there, he's talking about the people on the other side of the church wall. So if you go and tell this parable this morning to some of your friends over coffee, they're going to, if they're my age, scratch their bald head, and they're going to say, what are you talking about? They have no reference for what this actually means. So you have to put it into a proper context for them. That's what the parable was intending to do, except they didn't always get it. Now, this church has some amazing and wonderful expository preaching. I've been staying home and, and listening to it for the last, when did COVID start? Yeah, it seems like it, doesn't it? And, and I have nothing but good praise to say about the pulpit in this church. Expository preaching that is outstanding. But sometimes the text is about a story. And so we need to hear the story first and, and not get bogged down always in all the details like I gave you about those four Greek words. So let's hear the story in its context. What the heck is going on in chapter 18? In chapter 18, I mean, wow, if you read that chapter, it'll blow your mind. Because this is the fourth discourse of Jesus. He's talking to his disciples. It's the, if we use those fancy Greek words, the penultimate, which means the, the second to last discourse that Jesus is giving them their teaching. And he's just blowing them out of the water. So the first thing that happens is one of the disciples says, who among us is the greatest? Do you think they've been listening to him when they ask that question? And he, he just shakes his head and he calls up a little child and says, just like, just like uh, Justin's daughter here, and he says, you've got to be like this or you have no chance of getting in the kingdom of heaven. And can you imagine? Can you imagine what Peter and John and James thought about that? <laughs> what? What are, you, what are you doing? What are you talking about? And then he goes on in the next verses to explain, if you do something to prevent this child from understanding and developing their faith, it would be better for me to put a rock around your neck and throw you in the ocean. Now the disciples are really, really going like, what is he on about? Next, he says, well, what if you were a shepherd and you're out in the field with 100 sheep and one got away? What would you do? Well, all the, all the disciples are saying, well, of course, we'd stay home with the 99. Who's going to risk it for one? And then Jesus says, of course, you go off and you find the one. Because in heaven, they're going to rejoice that you brought the lost one home. Now they're just their heads are swirling, and they're just, oh. Then the question becomes, how do you bring a person back into good relationship within the community when they've sinned? And Jesus goes through a whole rigmarole about how to restore them. One, this step. You go and you see them privately. Two, if they don't believe you, you take your best friend Justin, and you talk to them again. If they don't believe you and Justin, you bring him here in front of the church. And if the whole church says, 
rotter, throw him out. Then what do you do? He says, well, then you treat him like a tax collector or a Gentile. And everybody who reads that for the first time says, oh, what does that mean? You throw them out? Well, no, of course not. Because what is Jesus' ministry? His ministry is to Gentiles and tax collectors. You go try harder. You, you, you don't stop. You keep going again and again and again because you must try to restore them. There is no lost cause in heaven. Understand? Oh, Justin, I can do this for you. Can I have an amen? Amen. Thank you. There's no lost cause in heaven. Understand that. That's really, really vital. And then Peter, (laughs) my favorite disciple, he's going to be the straight man for Jesus. He says, okay, how many times then should we forgive? Up to seven? Because the, the, the standard, the Jewish standard, was three. Right? If you did it three times, you were doing great. After three, you're on your own. And you can look up the references for that. We don't have time today. Three times. And he said seven. And he expected Jesus to go, Whoa, Peter, you're so good. Why don't you join my team? I'll make you leader. But what does Jesus do? He says, No! Not seven times, but 77 or seven times seven. Depends what translation you read. And, and Peter just stares at him. Because in effect, that meant never stop. Never stop forgiving. And then we came to the parable for today. Let's pray. Lord, come open our minds and hearts before you as we listen intently to the words of Scripture this morning. We realize that many of these words are attributed to you, Lord Jesus. Intensify our desire to learn and to grow through the Spirit's guidance. As we seek to grasp the importance of Jesus' fourth discourse, the penultimate teaching of our Lord in Matthew's Gospel, grant that we may be among the followers chosen to hear and to understand the true disciples of Jesus. Amen and amen. The word of the Lord as it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, reading verses 21 and 22 to begin. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked the Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Infinity. Never, ever stop. Forgiveness is one of the fundamental, basic qualities and ingredients of Christianity. We're forgiven by a loving God, and we're called to be a forgiving people. If we're going to say that we are Christ's body, this is required of us to forgive and forgive and forgive. Suffice it to say, in Jesus' reaction to Peter, seven is completely insufficient. God's example of forgiveness is truly infinite. You need only consider your own life to realize the truth of this. 
So now we're going to examine a kingdom parable that is in conflict with an earthly kingdom. And when we talk about kingdoms, sometimes this is uh, where people zone out. We don't have kingdoms anymore. We don't talk about kingdoms. So I want you to translate this as worldviews. We have a heavenly worldview, and we have an earthly worldview. And Jesus is contrasting and, and comparing those two. And those two are in conflict. They clash. So here we go. The parable at last, you say. I've put um, italics and color for certain key concepts as we go through, as we read it, okay? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master had mercy on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, let's go back to verse 23. Jesus makes it plain from the opening, this is a kingdom parable. As such, we anticipate learning what the values and practices of God's realm should be all about. The early church fathers interpreted this parable in the typical allegorical manner, assigning people and things to represent aspects of their faith. We tend in the present era to mix our interpretations and match them utilizing some allegorical elements. For instance, the king is God. But then we place limits on how far we allow the allegorical methodology to go. In other words, 
we don't buy in totally to the allegorical method of interpretation. In verse 24, we encounter what would have been a stretch, even for the original hearers of Jesus' parable, whom we believe were the closest followers. They were the disciples. They were in that, remember that picture of them walking together and just having this open discussion? 10,000 bags of gold owed by a servant to the king? That would have been an astronomical sum that either Jesus was joking about or he was using hyperbole to make his point. To see an equivalent in, in our era, this would be like saying there was a civil servant who owed the federal government a billion dollars. Well, come to think of it, maybe that's not such a stretch. <laughs> you know, some of the things I've read lately. But anyway, you get the point, right? So the king, in a predictable fashion, begins by acting as an accountant. He's looking for his realm and to protect it, and he demands immediate payment. And he orders the servant, his wife, and his family, and all his possessions to be sold to pay the debt. Now, this liquidation, of course, would be just a drop in the bucket compared to what he actually owed. Now, the servant, here we go, realizing that he's forfeiting his future, he begs for mercy. He tells the king, he'll pay back everything. I just need a little time. <laughs> a little time to raise a billion dollars. I wonder how long that would take. Then, in a totally unexpected move, the king has mercy on the servant. And you can bet the disciples are totally blown away. Forgiving a billion-dollar debt? Letting him go scot-free? I mean, not even giving him some little bit to repay. He, he wiped the whole thing out. He canceled the debt. Now, you've got to admit, no earthly king would ever do such a thing. Because for an earthly king to be so generous would be a sign of weakness. It would be a sign that he was out of control in his kingdom. And it would be a sign for the other servants that they too could take advantage of him. There's no way that kind of thing could possibly happen. So now, off goes our forgiven servant. He, on the other hand, has not set foot anywhere near the holy ground that the king has blessed him with. He leaves the courtyard, and the first thing he does is shake down a fellow servant for a mere hundred silver coins, or the equivalent of maybe a grand. Compared to the billion dollars, he's been forgiven. What's happening here? What's going on? Well, what's going on is the economy of heaven has failed to penetrate the exterior and the, the worldview of this servant. For this servant, the only thing that matters is getting back into business and reestablishing himself as a tough, as somebody you don't mess with, as somebody who, if you borrow from me, you better be prepared to pay it back. 
And so right away, he grabs the man that owes him money. He throws him in debtor's prison. And even that makes no sense. Because if he wants his grand thousand dollars back, the guy can't make any money in debtor's prison. But there was every chance that he could pay it back if he let him stay free. So this is all about being seen as a hard nut, as a tough guy, as somebody that you don't mess with. And so the second servant, asking to be forgiven in exactly the same words, and in Greek it is exactly the same words, except that he's not stupid enough to say, I'll get your billion dollars. He actually could have repaid the servant. He goes to debtor's prison. Now, of course, we have the other servants. The, the, the uh, unforgiving servant feels that these people are now going to be under my thumb, but instead of that, they rush back to the king, and they tell him what's happened. And he, in a fit of anger, calls the first servant back, and he says, you wicked servant. You remember that term? You wicked servant. He's practically calling him the devil. Do you remember when Peter was rebuked by Jesus? Satan, get behind me, that phrase. This is very, very similar. You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have shown mercy to your fellow servant. And so he throws him into debtor's prison and he begins to, to have to be tortured for his misdemeanor. And as far as we know, he's still there because he's not getting any closer to paying that billion dollar debt. So this parable has this ring about it that there is justice. The justice may not come in the immediacy, but sure enough, a just God will bring justice. And this is what... Oh, I can't turn the slides on over there. This is what chapter 18 has been building to, to tell us. You don't play games with a holy God. In the end, God knows. And in the end, there will be justice. He may be forgiving. He may be loving. He may be all of those other things that we desire so much that he is. But by my faith, in the end, he has to be just. And he will not be fooled no matter how clever we think we might be. So, one of the things that is so important in contemporary preaching, or any preaching for that matter, is to be able to move from something in the past to something in the present. 
And I wanted to illustrate this by showing you this beautiful portrayal of the parable from the 16th century by Jan van Hemmesen. So here we have uh, the, the king recalling the servant and saying, you thought you uh, pulled one off on me, did you? <laughs> Not so fast. And that's represented in this beautiful oil painting from the 16th century. And then this contemporary piece that is uh, done by James Jangnet, who does a lot of very beautiful um, contemporary um, art for the Gospels. And you can see the contemporary version. It's, it's like he's gone to the bank, and then he's gone to get somebody like he's a loan shark, and then he's been condemned. Okay? So now, let me tell you the parable in a modern kind of time frame. Hopefully I can get this done quickly. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who once had a stepson who was to be taught the basics of his trade. The man was a printer and his stepson was eager to please and learned all about the printing business from when he was a young lad until he graduated from high school. The stepfather always dreamed of being a big business success, but he was a terrible businessman, making far too many costly mistakes. He also had serious personality problems. He gambled, he drank, he caroused, and in modern terms, he was recovering from something that we would now call PTSD. At one point in his familial relationship, the stepson was enrolled to attend university. Through hard work and hours of dedication, he had two potential scholarship opportunities, one for athletics and one for academics. Unfortunately, the athletic scholarship was dashed through a very serious injury. At this point, the son began questioning whether God existed and why he was so angry with him. But the second scholarship remained intact, making university still a possibility for the fall. The stepfather, however, was in dire need of money for his printing business. He begged his stepson to help out and borrowed the scholarship money, promising to pay it back by September. The summer months dragged on. The son healed from his surgery and began to work in the print shop once more. Then, devastating news. When fall came for the semester to start at university, there was no money to be paid for tuition. When asking to be paid for his labor for the summer, there was no money to be paid for the labor. The son was forced to borrow money on student loans and work part-time to get through first-year studies. However, he soon forgave his stepfather. After second-year university, the situation grew even more intense. The stepfather convinced the son that the business would ruin the family if the son did not step up and help. Quit school for one year and all will be well he said. It was agreed, one year. It was a year that was worse than being an indentured servant. At the end of that year, after so much drinking, so much gambling, so much carousing and critical mistakes had occurred, 
the business was no longer financially viable. It was in debt. Unknown to the stepson, the stepfather declared bankruptcy, which left him, the stepson, now the sole proprietor of a business responsible for $129,000 in debt. I'm sure the son could relate to the billion dollars of Jesus' parable. It felt like it might be that much. The hyperbole of the parable doesn't seem to be out of place when you're facing an impossible financial obstacle. At 22 years of age in 1975, the young man was crushed by the weight of the debt. Life felt like it was over before it had even begun. To declare bankruptcy at this young age would certainly ruin your future. At this point, God became no longer a mean, punishing, seemingly wicked power to the son. There was enough of that in the stepfather. Prayer started to make sense as a way of dealing with the son's hardship. But as yet, there was no knowledge of mercy. Aphemi, the stepson plowed on. Then a miracle. At least, that's the way we see it. The business was sold for exactly its debts. $129,000. All that was left to pay off was the personal indebtedness resulting from too much trust. The stepson felt certain he could manage this. Prayer now turned to acknowledging God, what he had done, something amazing to relieve the burden. Something now must be done to acknowledge his mercy. As far as we know, this son is still attempting to be faithful and to pay forward the mercy he received all those years ago. Thanks be to God. Amen.